0: Hey guys, this is another rewritten episode. You can find the original on my Patreon account, which I will link in the show notes and blog. You can access all those other episodes for only $1 a month. Eventually, I will start putting bonus episodes on there for y'all, and if you want to support me in the podcast, you are more than welcome. I also want to preface that I found this amazing book that goes into so much detail about the horrible man I am discussing today, as well as great details about the victims. The book is called Evil Eyes by Corey Mitchell, and I put the Amazon link to his book on my blog. So let's get started. Carl Watts, who is also known as Quarrel for some reason, was born on November 7th, 1953 in Colleen, Texas, the neighboring town of Copper's Cove where I grew up. Carl's dad, Eugene Watts was a private in the army at Fort Hood and his mom, Dorothy Mae Young, was an art teacher for kindergarten children. When Carl was around two years old, his parents divorced and Carl was raised by his mother. Afterwards, he and his mom moved to Inkster, Michigan. In 1962, Dorothy, his mother, married a mechanic named Norman Caesar who already has six daughters. Together, they later had two other daughters, Carl's half-sisters. As a child, Carl was described as a strange kid. When he was around 12 years old, Carl began to fantasize about torturing and killing young girls and young women. Carl's hobbies included hunting and skinning rabbits. And he also began to stalk girls in his free time, and it's believed he could have committed his first murder at 16. At age 13, Carl was infected with meningitis, which caused him to be held back in the eighth grade. When he returned to school, Carl found it extremely difficult to keep up with the other students. He began to receive failing grades, and according to WickedWe.com, Carl was at a third grade level of reading at 16. He was also a shy kid, and because of this, he was bullied a lot during his time in school. Although Carl's grades were suffering, he was a great athlete. Carl took up boxing at the Silver Gloves boxing program that would teach boys respect for themselves and others, as well as discipline. Unfortunately, boxing only made him more aggressive at school, especially to his female peers. On June 29, 1969, when Carl was around 15 years old, he was arrested for attacking and sexually assaulting a 26-year-old woman named Joan Gave. Joan was one of Carl's customers from his paper route in Detroit. When asked why he did it, Carl responded by saying he just felt like beating someone up. He was sentenced to the Lafayette Clinic, a mental hospital in Detroit. During his psychiatric assessment, Carl was found to suffer from mild retardation, which isn't what that is called nowadays, but that is what was said at the time. His IQ was found to be around 68 to 75 and was said to have a delusional thought process. According to Evil Eyes, written by Corey Mitchell, Carl admitted that he first had sex at 14, but was not interested in girls. Quote, he also claimed that he was raised to believe that sex equated wicked behavior. Carl did not show any remorse in attacking Joan gave. He also expressed that he often had dreams where he would beat up and or kill women and often felt better after having one. After three months against Carl's doctor's wishes, Carl was placed in outpatient treatment. In the doctor's final review, he said Carl was paranoid with strong homicidal impulses. Why you would let him out? I have no idea. His behavior controls were faulty and Carl displayed a high potential for acting out. What I wish was documented somewhere was why Carl displayed these behaviors. You know, nature versus nurture. I just wish we knew if he was taught these behaviors or if he was born with them. Nevertheless, despite evidence that Carl was unstable, he was released from the clinic on November 9th, 1969 and was allowed to go back to school. He returned to sports and began to use drugs. His grades were still low and his behavior towards girls remained the same as before. Carl eventually graduated high school in 1972 and received a football scholarship to Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee. Unfortunately, he quickly got expelled after three months because of stalking and sexually assaulting women. He was even the prime suspect in the murder of a female student, but there wasn't enough evidence to charge him on anything. Despite all of this history, Carl still managed to return to college with another scholarship at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. And despite the second chance, Carl just ramped it up. On October 25th, 1974, Carl walked up to Kenor Kinizaki's door and knocked around 11 in the morning. Knorr opened the door and Carl asked if Charles was there. Knorr said there wasn't anybody by Charles there and told him he might want to try the neighbors. Carl then left and then came back a second time asking more urgently if Charles was there. Who is this Charles? As she tried to look for a paper and pen for Carl to leave a note, to Charles, Carl immediately attacked her and began to strangle her. Luckily, Gnor screamed and Carl left her on the floor and fled the scene. Five days later, 19-year-old WMU psychology student Gloria Steele was found dead with 33 stab wounds to the chest. Gloria had not been raped and nothing was taken from the apartment. A witness said he saw and spoke with a black man who was heading up to the staircase to her apartment. The witness remembered hearing the man asking for Charles before turning away. According to Evil Eyes, Gloria was very quiet, kind, and always spent her nights studying and taking care of her daughter. Gloria had come back from a successful job interview that day. And of course, eyes were on Carl immediately. WMU police chief John C. suspected Carl had something to do with Gloria's murder but the crime scene was cleaned up by her family before they could get any evidence and in the book the family said that wasn't the case and it's kind of a he said she said deal with who cleaned up the apartment but alas we don't have any evidence. On November 12th under similar circumstances as the first two attacks Diane Williams noticed a man lurking near her apartment complex asking about a man named Charles. The man knocked on Diane's door and asked for Charles. Diane gave him a piece of paper to write on and the man forced his way into the door. Luckily, the phone rang during the struggle and the man, aka Carl, fled the scene. Diane later made a report to the police after managing to see Carl's car, which was a tan Pontiac Grand Prix. During a lineup, Knorr and Diane both were able to pick out Carl from the lineup. Carl was then arrested on assault and battery. He refused to admit to Gloria Steele's murder, even though he admitted to being at her apartment complex the day before she was murdered and asked for a lawyer. Carl was released on bond, and in December, during an interrogation, Carl admitted to attacking 15 women. Of course, he then clammed up again and asked for a lawyer. Carl was then committed to the Kalamazoo State Hospital on larceny charges for 45 days. There, he was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Even with this diagnosis, he was still found competent to stand trial. Carl pleaded no contest at the trial for the assault and battery charges and received a one-year sentence. After Carl got out in August 1976, he moved back with his mother in Detroit. At this moment in time, Carl was only 20 years old. Honestly, if all of these psychologists and their professional opinion felt that Carl was a danger to society, why is he free? Why would you send him back out? So Carl dated a childhood friend, and they had a daughter in February 1979. Despite this, Carl ran off and married yet another woman, Victoria Goodwill. And evil eyes, Victoria said that Carl acted erratically and was very controlling of her. He didn't like Christmas, and he would often dream vividly. If Victoria moved an inch in bed and woke Carl up, he would start attacking her. Sometimes he would fall off the bed and not even wake up and just go back to bed. I just want to say there are a lot of victims, and I can only go over briefly what happened, but just note that all of these women had something to live for. They were people who deserved to live out their lives, and every one of them deserved better than how they died. In true crime shows, you always hear how a woman was a daughter, a friend, a mother, and it's true, these women that were victims of Carl were just that. They were a person. They were somebody who somebody cared about at one point or another, and he took away the chance for them to live out their lives. In October 1979, 22-year-old Peggy Pochmera was found strangled in the front yard of her boyfriend's neighbor. She was not sexually assaulted nor robbed. In the same month, Carl was arrested for prowling around in a suburb in Detroit, but the charges were later dropped. Earlier that year, in the same suburb that Carl was found prowling in, five women were assaulted on separate occasions. Those attacks resembled the attacks in Ann Arbor and Carl's attack when he was 15. The police were looking at him and it was clear that it was him, but they just couldn't nab him in anything. On Halloween, Jean Klein was found dead outside her home with 13 stab wounds. Since it was Halloween, everyone that passed her body thought she was a Halloween prank. Don Jerome's body was found in Taylor, and 32-year-old Malik Hadid's headless body was discovered in Allen Park. On December 1st, 36-year-old Helen May Dutcher was stabbed 12 times outside of HGM cleaners, and a witness later came and reported that the man who stabbed Helen looked like Carl. On March 10th, 1980, 80 23-year-old Hazel Conniff was strangled in Detroit and found in the driveway of her boyfriend's home. She was not raped nor robbed. On March thirty-first, Denise DeNore's strangled body was found in a parking lot in Detroit and wasn't raped or robbed. That April, the Ann Arbor police were called to the home of 17-year-old Shirley Small. Shirley looked like she was cut repeatedly with a scalpel and she bled to death on the sidewalk where she fell. Carl's wife, Valeria, divorced Carl in May 1980 because of his strange behavior. He had also stopped working and become a shut-in. I personally am glad that she got out of this situation, and I hope that she's living her best life. On May 31st, 27-year-old Linda Montiero was found strangled outside her home in Detroit. On July 13th, 26-year-old Glenda Richmond was also found dead near her doorway at her apartment from over 28 stab wounds. At this time, the police were linking all of these murders in Ann Arbor to the name, quote, the Sunday Morning Slasher. The police had barely any evidence and any witnesses to go on to try to solve these murders or to n- nail Carl with these murders. All of the attacks and murders were similar to those of Carl's, and with Carl in mind, the police began to build a task force and try to find more evidence on him. On July 31st, Lily Dunn was abducted near her driveway. Witnesses reported seeing and hearing her kick and scream as the man dragged her into his car. Police never found her body. In Windsor, Ontario, Canada, on the same day, 22-year-old Irene Kondratzewitz was found with her throat slashed. Fortunately, she survived the attack but couldn't identify her attacker. On September 14th, 20-year-old Rebecca Greer Huff died inside her doorway from 54 stab wounds. She was a student at the University of Michigan of Business School. On October 6th, in Windsor, Ontario, 20-year-old Sandra Jewel was stabbed from behind in her back and stabbed on her mouth and neck. Sandra survived and told the police she noticed her attacker waiting across the street at a bus stop earlier in the day. Sandra also said that the man thought she was dead and left her. Carl's car was spotted using the US Canadian border the next day. On November 1st, in the same town, 30 year old Mary Angus felt like she was being followed and managed to escape her attacker by a screaming. Luckily, Mary also managed to get a good look at him and later picked Carl out from a photo lineup. Unfortunately, she couldn't confirm that her attacker was Carl. But she still pointed him out. Carl's car was tracked through highway cameras and was seen driving by with every attack that occurred. Even though Mary couldn't 100% confirm that Carl was her attacker, Carl officially became the leading suspect in the murders and attacks. On November 6, 63-year-old Lena Bennett's naked body was found hanging by a trench coat belt from a wooden beam in her street garage. Lena was sexually assaulted. Later that year in November, an Ann Arbor woman called the police because a strange man was following her. She hid in a doorway and managed to escape. Police then arrested the man who was at the scene looking for her in his car. And can you just guess who this man was? Police found screwdrivers, wood filing tools, and a book with Rebecca Greer Huff's name in it. Rebecca was murdered in September 1980, if you remember, a couple of months before they found him at the scene. Despite this evidence, police had to let him go. Ann Arbor Detective Paul Button continued to put surveillance on Carl and show up at the grocery store and confront Carl, and he would also try to get him to crack. I really recommend reading Evil Eyes because he goes into so much detail about what they did during this surveillance and they even got a warrant to put a tracking device on his car. In January 1981, police took Carl's blood sample. Unfortunately, his sample didn't match any blood at the crime scene. With all this heat on Carl and after his last interrogation with Detective Button, Carl became very disinterested in being caught and decided to run away to Northwest Houston. There, Carl lived with a friend and lived in his friend's car and found work in an oil company. He eventually got fired but found a new job as a mechanic in Columbus, 70 miles away from Houston. He also began to attend church and on the weekends while he was off at work, Carl would spend his time cruising Houston streets like he had in Michigan. I'm so happy that he's found God and Jesus and that he has hobbies now. Good for you, Carl. Sarcasm. Anyways, Carl eventually became a mechanic for the Houston bus system where he could be closer to potential victims. Detective Button back in Michigan sent Carl's file to Houston law enforcement and anywhere Carl tried to get a job because he knew Carl would continue to assault and murder women and he wanted to psych him out. That is just the reality of the situation. Because of our laws, we can't arrest someone in the United States without proof of their criminal behavior, without concrete evidence or they can't arrest someone on little evidence, and they were basically just waiting for someone to get hurt. I applaud Detective Button and his insistence on nabbing Carl, but the fact that the judicial system kind of let him slip, not only with the psychiatric hospitals, but with the lack of evidence for each victim, it's just wild how he managed to do this for so long. Unfortunately, Detective Button was right, Carl was at it again, but they still had little evidence on him, and I'm about to name a lot of names and how they died again, Um, so if you need to take a break or want to skip over, now is your chance. On September 5th that year, -year 22-year-old college student Linda Tilly was attacked in her apartment complex. In the struggles, both the attacker and Linda fell into the pool where he held her head under the water until she died. Unfortunately, there were no witnesses. Seven days later, 25-year-old Elizabeth Montgomery died from stab wounds to her chest while she was walking her dog out at midnight. Two hours after Elizabeth's murder, 20-year-old Susan Wolf was getting out of her car and walking to her apartment when Carl attacked her. And I can say Carl because we know it's Carl. Carl stabbed her multiple times and left her for dead. Left and right, Carl kept losing the jobs he got and found others, and with his erratic behaviors and the letter Detective Button would send to the jobs he would apply for, Carl would soon get fired and he would move on to the next one. In January of 1982, 27-year-old Phyllis Tam was found on the campus of Rice University. She was hanged by an article of her own clothing. In the same month, 25-year-old Margaret Fossey was found dead in the trunk of her own car. Her larynx was crushed by a powerful blow and she died from asphyxiation. On February 7th, 1982, 20-year-old Elena Samander was found strangled and partially nude in a trash bin. In March, Emily Lacroix was reported missing from Berkshire, Texas, 40 miles west of Houston after hitchhiking on Highway 10. She and her father had just gotten into a fight. Can you imagine that guilt? of having that fight with your loved one and then they are never seen again and then you find out what happened to them. I I can't fathom that. Carl was seen driving on that highway the same day and it is very likely that he did abduct her. On March 27th, a 34-year-old medical student named Edith Anna Ledet was stabbed 17 times while jogging in Houston. Right after this attack, Carl then tried to attack Glenda Kirby, who fortunately managed to escape. On April 15th, 26-year-old Yolanda Gracia was stabbed six times in her home and died from the wounds. On the next night, 32-year-old Carrie Mae Jefferson went missing after working her night shift. She was outside her home when Carl grabbed her and threw her into his car and drove off. 25-year-old Suzanne Sarles went missing on April 24th. She was supposed to go to a concert with her friends that night, but never made it. She also did not show up to work the next day, and that was just not like her. Her shoes and broken glasses were removed in her car at her apartment complex. On May 22nd, 20-year-old Michelle Medea was found strangled to death in her bathtub in her apartment. Carl had followed her home after she had celebrated her 20th birthday with her friends. Her mom found her the next morning. On May 23, 1982, Carl was seen fleeing the apartment of Lori Lister and Melinda Aguilar. Carl had tied them up and tried to drown Lori. Melinda managed to escape by jumping off her balcony and running to her neighbors. Carl then fled the scene and Lori survived the attempted drowning, fortunately. With all of this evidence, he was found and arrested. The same morning before he was caught trying to murder Lori and Melinda, 20-year-old Michelle Monday was found strangled to death in her bathroom. Carl refused to talk at first, but in the meantime, psychiatrists declared him sane, but he was good to go to trial. They said his feelings dated back to childhood when his favorite uncle was killed by a female relative. In August 1982, to get Carl to talk, Harris County Assistant District Attorney Ira Jones agreed to give Carl immunity to the charge of murder, only if he confessed to all the murders he committed. Jones' idea was to get closure on 50 unsolved murders. At the time, Carl received a guilty plea on burglary charges and a sentence of 60 years, 20 minimum before consideration of parole. With this plea deal, Carl admitted to attacking 19 women, 13 of which he said he murdered. Carl also confessed to 80 murders in Michigan and Canada, but refused to give more information because he didn't have immunity there. In 1987, Of course, Carl attempted to escape prison by slipping through the cell bars. After this, Carl then thought it would be a good idea to start using his appeals. So, I don't know, Carl, maybe use your appeals before you try to slip through, Bundy style. In October of that year, the court randomly decided that criminals must be told that a deadly weapon finding had occurred during their indictment. Failure to tell the criminal is a violation of their rights. In 1989, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals decided that Carl wouldn't have to serve his full sentence because he wasn't told the bathtub and water in Lori's case was considered a lethal weapon. For every day served would equal three days served, and basically it's called good time earned. Obviously, everyone was outraged by this, but it couldn't be reversed because even though it was abolished, it was used during his trial. Instead of redoing the trial, they just kept the sentence. And according to Murderpedia, Joe Tilly, the father of Linda Tilly, said about Carl, quote, Forgiveness cannot be bestowed when forgiveness is not sought. This is a confrontation with pure evil. Mike Cox, Michigan's attorney general at the time, asked the public to come forward with any information that they had on Carl or anything that might link to any unsolved murders or disappearances in Michigan. And if they couldn't keep Carl in prison in Texas, maybe they can have him in Michigan. A man named Joseph Foy came forward and said Carl looked like a man he saw in December 1979. Joseph said the man was stabbing 26-year-old Helen Dutcher who later died from her wounds. So Carl was then indicted for Helen's murder and on November 17, 2004, Carl was found guilty and on December 7th was sentenced with life in prison. A couple of days later, Carl was charged with Gloria Steele's murder. That trial began on July 25th. fifth, twenty Two thousand seven that trial began on july twenty fifth two thousand seven That trial began on july twenty fifth two thousand seven in Kalamazoo, Michigan. He was found guilty a couple days later and received another life sentence later in September. So Carl was sent to the Iona Correctional Facility in Iona, Michigan. Unfortunately, he ended up dying of prostate cancer on September 21st, 2007. And I say unfortunately because I personally feel like he deserved to live his life in prison. I can't say the same about families of the victims and whatever they feel is totally valid. I also feel if anyone deserves prostate cancer, it is definitely this guy. That's just my opinion and I totally understand that everyone else has a different one. so much information i had to leave out because of the length of the episode and if you want like i said before if you want more information about the trial about the police work about a better background of the victims because the book gives such a beautiful background of almost every victim i highly suggest reading evil eyes the link to the book on amazon will be on my blog in the show notes please read it it's mind-blowing and there's so much more information about everything I hope you have a good rest of your day and stay safe out there, guys. Thank you for listening to Crime Cloud. If you would like to access my Instagram, go to at Crime Cloud Podcast. And for my Twitter, go to at Crime Cloud Pod. To find the blog, go to CrimeCloudPodcast.blog. To email suggestions or corrections, use CrimeCloudPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening and supporting the podcast.